Today's episode is very cool, guys. I'm just saying it. I got to talk with the people from Know Your Stuff, uh, specifically Wendy. Um, Know Your Stuff is an organization based in New Zealand that facilitates free drug testing at music festivals, as well as some places within the city leading up to the festival season. This was a really cool conversation just around the process of testing these drugs, the benefit that it offers to people who do go to music festivals, uh, the legality around this topic, and the next steps going forward. Uh, Wendy and I had a great chat about this on the podcast. I'm sure you will enjoy it. You can find out all the details about the organization in the show notes below. Check that out. Know Your Stuff. Awesome organization. Um, as far as shows that I have coming up, um, I guess this will come out when I am in the South or coming up to my South Island show. So I'll be in uh, Nelson, Blenheim, Dunedin, Christchurch, Queenstown, and Wanaka uh, from the 22nd of March through to the 30th of March. A uh, huge shout out to the sponsor, Juicy. Uh, Juicy Rentals, who have managed to hook us up with a van for the whole trip, which is sick. Thank you, guys. Uh, apart from that, guys, that's all. Enjoy the show. Thank you. Wendy. Hi. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. <laughs> so, um, you work with uh, Know Your Stuff, and... Describe what that organization is. Uh, know Your Stuff is a drug checking organization. We're a grassroots community movement that came out of the festival community. Our purpose is to reduce the harm associated with drugs. Um, our main service is checking drugs for people who have an illicit substance and intend to use it. So we check it and tell them what's in it and then provide harm reduction information associated with that to help people stay cool. safe. How did you guys start? So you were volunteer. You're, I mean, it's a volunteer-based organization, right? It is, yes. Yeah. Nobody gets paid, not even me. Um, okay. <laughs> and it's Sunday. And it's 11 a.m. right now, guys. <laughs> Just got out of bed. Um, <laughs> so it started at a festival where I was doing risk management. And there were some pills going around that some people were having a great time with and other people were having a terrible time and ending up in the medics with psychotic episodes and stuff like that. So mm. it was obvious that some of these pills were MDMA and some of these pills were not. And after that incident, the medics came to us and said, if you don't do something about this, someone's going to die. And so we, we basically looked at our options and, and came up with three. One was do nothing and wait for someone to die, and obviously we couldn't do that. Uh, number two was to follow the Australian model and get the police in with sniffer dogs and strip searches and wait for someone to die, just like they're doing in Australia. And we we're like, no, we don't want to do that. And because I have a background in drug policy, um, my degree is in criminology, I kind of went, well, what about harm reduction? Do you know about drug checking? And the event agreed to allow us to run a very, very small stall and... 
at the time, they were very concerned about the legal situation. Oh, this is my next question. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. and I'll, we'll get into that. But um, basically, they allowed us to be there on the pretext that they could have plausible deniability that they didn't know we were there. Right. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. So, like, no signage? No signage. No signage. Um, there was nothing. We just spread the word by word of mouth. And right. At that festival, we tested 48 samples, and of those, only 20% were what they were supposed to be. This was five years ago? This was in 2015. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's when you technically kind of first started there, right? That was our very first public-ish yeah. <laughs> drug checking session. The reaction of people when they find out that their drugs are not what they've been said to be because, and I might be wrong here, but with the facilities that you guys have, you can say the amount of a substance is in there, but you can't identify perfectly what is in the drug. Is that right? We can identify up to five different ingredients in a sample. So we can identify mixtures of drugs, adulterated drugs, drugs with fillers and binders and all that kind of stuff. We can make a rough estimate of how much of each is in there, but what we can't do is measure purity. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And I know a lot of the at-home tests, they are detecting the presence of, let's say, for example, MDMA. Yes, that's right. And they can only identify one thing in sure. a substance, and that will be the thing that makes the strongest color. And the color reaction for MDMA with most of these is black. Uh-huh. And what that means is if there's anything else in there, it won't show up because oh, the black will so cover dumb, it up. Actually, yeah. It's unfortunately the nature of chemistry. <laughs> Is that what, okay? Well then, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I thought it was the design. Okay, never mind. <laughs> no, sadly, no. If there was a reagent now that I went feel hot like pink. An idiot. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, it's so stupid of me. Okay, um, all right. So that's that's wild. So you guys have been around for a few years, and things have obviously been changing a lot in the sphere. And I wanted to talk about what happened recently, which was the big reform with the the amendment to the bill, the name Bill 22, is that right? We actually got our own act. Okay, describe, run me through I can't even remember the name of it. It's the Drug Checking Something Something Substances Act. And is this you guys spearheading it? Well, we didn't write it, but we made it happen. This was, our, our original aim was to help our own community Um, And to prove that it works. And we did that quite early on in the piece, but it sort of took on a life of its own after we went public, after we partnered with the Drug Foundation and they bought a spectrometer for us to use. Spectrometer is... Um, (laughs) (laughs) Listen, man. (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. Okay. um, I mean, I think I know what it is. It detects the different substances and drugs, but on a quite minute scale. Is that right? It does. It's used for forensic analysis of the content of substances. And I could go into the science of how that works. That's plenty, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's basically a black box that you put drugs in one end and you get a reading out the other that tells you you what's in them. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Derp. (laughs) Yeah. And so the Drug Foundation, we came to their attention and they were like, what you're doing is a good idea. We want to help. And so to do that, they bought the spectrometer, mm-hmm. which is the only currently field-capable type of spectrometer in the world. Um, new technology is emerging all the time, but this is currently what we have. And they said, you use it, we'll supply it, let's be partners. Um, and there was an orchestrated release of our information and going public. And of course, once that happened, this whole thing took on a life of its own and the government got interested. Sure. And it took them a few years to get their heads around drug checking. Mm-hmm. Um but the upshot of that is that last year they changed the law. 
well, they created a new act that allows drug checking to take place because previously we'd been operating in this bizarre legal grey area where what we were doing was not illegal because we were never in possession. We were never giving the substances back. And you're back. very careful about the possession side of things. I remember because I went to this one festival and um, it was very much like, I can't touch it. You have to do it all yourself. Yes. It was very surreal, it felt. Yeah, it's it, it's very, very strange. But it was how we got around the idea of us being in possession because that would make us illegal. Yes. Whereas the people who are having the substances checked are already breaking the law by obtaining substances. So for them, it's much less of a jump from not, well, they're not providing a service, they're using the service. So we could have got shut down if we broke the law, basically. So Mm. we didn't. Mm -hmm. Um, But the law also contains a section, section 12, which criminalizes anyone who knowingly allows a venue to be used for offences against the Act. So by getting us in, event promoters were acknowledging they know people use drugs on their premises, which could technically put them upside of the law. And this is the thing that nobody knew what the interpretation was. We were pretty certain that that law actually exists to stop... um, London nightclub owners from taking kickbacks for letting people deal drugs on their premises because our law is pretty much copied from the UK law um, and that no one in New Zealand was going to get busted for getting us in, but it existed and we pointed it out. Were there any cases of this law being applied prior to the amendment? Not for this particular purpose, no. Mm. Um, I'm sure it's being used for other purposes, but not for busting anyone who's using drug checking services. Gotcha. But because it was there, nobody was sure whether it was illegal or not, and we were seeking for that to be clarified, and that's what this law does, is clarifies it in such a way that we can operate, we are now allowed to touch the substances, which mm-hmm. speeds things up, Um <laughs> They've said we're allowed to give them back as well, which is interesting because we still don't yes. give them back, but we're allowed to. <laughs> and sorry, clarify that. So I come to you, I have MDMA, I give you the substance, uh, I give you a sample that you are going to test. Yeah, okay, okay, yeah. that you test, and then that sample uh, you guys keep, dispose of. Yes. Yeah, okay. We. I mean, I guess it does allow us to do something like someone will give us a little bag with their capsule in it. We can take the capsule, take the sample out and give them the rest back. Yes, yes. But we, the sample that we use is destroyed as part of the process. Um, right. We drop acid on it, um, yeah. which is the reagents. <laughs> and, and then when we clean the spectrometer, it gets mixed, mixed up with isopropyl alcohol and that all gets thrown out. Got you. obviously nobody's going to use that. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, you'd be surprised. <laughs> Um, The other thing that the law does is it's basically there is a gazette notice now on the internet signed by Ashley Bloomfield that says we're allowed to do what we do. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole bunch of stuff around that, not least of which is we have to hang a copy of this notice up on the wall in our tent. So our intention is to get a big ornate frame and (laughs) and, and hang it up and look, look, we changed the law. (laughs) We're legal. Yeah. And that felt like quite, quite a victory. Um, It's been a long time coming and the next step is to work with the Ministry of Health to put a proper regulatory framework around it because that law was basically the know your stuff can operate law Mm -hmm. Um, and no one's going to get busted for that. But if other people are going to move into this space and do drug checking, which is likely to happen, Mm -hmm. then there needs to be proper regulation and accountability and liability and licensing and qualification and all that stuff. So that's Mm. the next step. And they've got a year to do it. 
a year. A year. <laughs> How are you feeling? Optimistic? Um, I'm optimistic that there will be a law in place at the end of the year. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I know that the people who are working on this are genuinely intending to get it right. I also know that there are a lot of unintended consequences to any kind of regulatory framework, but we are there as giving expert advice as the only people in the country who actually do this um, to try and make sure we point out the potential pitfalls and and help shape it in a way that will actually work. And they are listening to what you guys are saying? One would hope so. Yeah. I I know with my experience and other people's experiences, a lot of times, like, you know, stakeholder engagement, you know, it just does, it falls through a lot of the times. And so like, you know, they put in a law that's supposed to do a good thing. And then there's just so many unintended consequences that, that do happen. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, I have concerns because it is a, a big unwieldy beast with a lot of arms and legs that could potentially cause problems. But we could are, could you give some examples of those problems? Well, for example, Um, okay, say somebody who moves into it, recent example, meth testing of houses. And yeah, right, yeah. The, the cowboys came in, they made a lot of money by telling people that their houses were full of meth and they needed to pay loads of money to clean them. Um, there was a expert advisory group that set the level of meth in a house that would require it to be cleaned and it was ridiculously low and nobody pointed out that this was going to create a moral panic and cost a whole lot of people a whole lot of money for no good reason and and of course the cowboys were making money hand over fist and they weren't going to point it out and we're trying to get people who move into the drug checking space not to be in it for money but Mm. for the purpose of reducing harm so it's how do you set up a framework yeah that keeps the cowboys out but doesn't exclude people for example the young guy in a town where there isn't a drug checking service who's very very good with reagents or has a spectrometer um wants to help his own community get you i get you yeah yeah so it's allowing that without allowing people from from misusing it to make money or giving a low quality service that could get people killed Mm-hmm. You know, so there's mm, sort of, of course. that's the parameters yeah. that we've got to work in. Do you see any changes within for-profit drug testing agencies coming in uh, to these festival spaces? At this stage, no. And part of the reason for that is that we keep pushing the line that there's no money in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly the way we're doing it, there isn't. Mm-hmm. We're not for profit. We never intend to make a profit. We do intend to cover our costs because sure. obviously we'll go broke otherwise. And is that through... F- actually, carry on and I'll, and I'll talk about that later. Um, but there could come a time when, for example, having drug checking at a festival is a selling point for the festival. Yes. And I can see how that may open itself to for-profit businesses yes. making money off it. And at that point, we would want some kind of system to make sure that all of the meth testing labs don't suddenly turn up at festivals starting mm-hmm. to charge people $5 a test or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly how I see it. Uh, yeah, yeah, my, my thoughts of it. And I think the great thing is that you guys kind of own the space at the moment we you do, know yes. and, and and you are a i mean you don't charge anything no is that correct to get we don't charge clients because okay. our our aim is to reduce harm and the people who are most vulnerable to the harm are the people with the least money generally so mm-hmm. we're talking really young people we're talking um people who we don't generally reach because these people don't go to festivals but as people 
people in communities that are affected by stuff like synthetic cannabinoids or opioids, um, these are communities that could benefit from drug checking, but we don't currently access them because we operate at festivals and obviously you... Yes, of course. <laughs> yeah. And you're not going to those. Yeah. yeah, but we would like the framework to allow for that to happen. Got you. Um, and our principle is that we don't charge clients. It doesn't cost anybody to get a test done. Right. We do ask events to help cover our costs because they are making a profit from the event mm-hmm. um, and it's in their best interest to keep their people safe, very similarly to the St. John's and, and other sort of safety services that they have. Mm. So events have been pretty good about that. That's um, good. I think there is a limit to how much they're able to pay before it starts becoming too much for them. Of course. And yeah. the, the model that I see working for funding in the future is possibly a subsidized model where the events pay, say, a dollar or $2 a ticket, um, and any over and above that is covered by the government. And the reason that I think that that's a good idea is the amount of money we're saving the taxpayer by kids not going to hospital. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's, well, this summer, quite a lot. <laughs> I know. Yeah, well, yeah, I do want to talk about that too. But yeah, I think um, I, th- I think that's a great way to, to go about it. I think it is, it is we are getting to a place, it's the same with like public health care, you know, or just public ad campaigns that promote healthy eating. You put the money up front, uh, and it's going to save you a lot of money down the road, you know, with education, same deal. I was wondering what it's like prior to this bill passing and the amendment, the interactions with police at the festivals. And because, I mean, surely they would be aware of your presence. And there's like a gray area. And in my experience with police at festivals, they are in a position of harm reduction as well. And I might be wrong here, but I've only, and I probably don't have as much of an experience as other people or perhaps yourself working in the field as well. What's your interactions with them like? The police have always just left us to get on with it. Mm. Um, They have been aware of our existence since probably year three when we first started doing more than one event. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, And at first we thought we were going to get arrested. But what we observed is the police basically walk past, they clock us, they let us know that they know we're there, and then they carry on. And they have never been able to publicly support us because the police are supposed to be an apolitical organisation and, of course, drug checking is a political topic. Mm. Um, But they never... What's the opposite of support? <laughs> they never enforced the law, or the opposite of support. Well, yeah, yeah. They never arrested us. Um, they never harassed our clients. And when you think about what the police do, as you said, harm prevention, and their their little tagline that says "safer communities together," people forget about that. Mm-hmm. But our experience w- with the police has been that they want people to be safe. They see that what we're doing is helping people be safe, and so they've gone. We're just going to let them get on with it. And the other thing there, which has nothing to do with us, is that the police don't have time to be busting a kid who's got a pill of MDMA in their pocket. They're after people who are supplying. So they're not interested in one person walking into our tent to get their drugs tested. They do know they probably won't be wiping them up off the floor at the end of the night, though, which is a positive for them. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I had a police officer on recently uh, just about the podcast, and it was very much the Safer Communities Together is like a very pillar in line that just runs through the whole place. And I think there's a lot of misconceptions about New Zealand police. There's a lot of things they don't do right and stuff like that. But I do think that overall, uh, yeah, they do a pretty good job. Yeah, I, I think I think they do too. And I mean, as, as you've pointed out, there are 
things about the police that I would criticise, but mm. our interactions with the police For have sure. been very, very good. And I feel like I need to say this, is that the environment that we work in is predominantly middle-class white kids. Sure. Yep. Not, not yep. always, mm-hmm. but predominantly. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> the police's record with middle-class white kids is a lot better than their record with mm. other people. That's a very good and, point. And um, I feel like we are almost the pretty face of harm reduction mm-hmm. in which... When, for example, the journalists put the pictures in the paper of, of festivals, it's always a bunch of white kids jumping up and down going, yay! Mm-hmm. But if they're talking about other drugs, they tend to have the like the, the dark hoodie guy and, and, and all of this imagery. But when, when people look at those pictures of kids at festivals, they see their own kids. Mm-hmm. And the politicians see their own kids. Mm-hmm. And, and that has worked in our favour in a big way. And I believe that that also has fed in... To, at least in part, to how the police have dealt with what we do. This is a great foot in the door then for future progress. I mean, it, it seems like even when you were mentioning like the fact that you can give drugs back to people after having tested them, it just seems like one one step removed from the decriminalization of, of certain substances. It's very difficult to say where the government is likely to go with this because they have had harm reduction as a pillar of their drug policy for years and years and years and actually not put a lot of stuff in place. Mm -hmm. This is the first large public thing they've done for quite a while. And there are a number of other things that they could do, like the amendment that they made to the Act that essentially put the onus on the police to demonstrate a public health benefit through prosecution before they're allowed to prosecute anyone for possession of drugs. Mm -hmm. And that... A lot of people saw as opening the door for decriminalisation as well. But unfortunately, what seems to have happened is it's effectively decriminalised drugs for white people. Right. Um, right. And brown people are still getting arrested at the same rate they were before. So now the health minister has announced a review of how well that's working to see mm-hmm. if they can do it better. So the, I guess the will is there, but there seems to be a huge fear of the perception of condoning drug use. This is exactly what I think as well. I feel like the political, those currently, I mean, listen, I, I, I've, and I don't never met Jacinda Ardern or Ashley Bloomfield, but I think if you actually said to them, like, do you really think criminalizing drugs is the way to go about, you know, reducing harm in our communities? They're not going to say yes. You know what I mean? I mean, the evidence I think is getting so overwhelming that it's just a like very dumb point of view not dumb ill-informed point of view to have and i think the big hamstring what makes them so hamstrung is that yeah it's the public reception and it's the you know re-election you know we want to we want to be hence the referendum that we had why not just put it through okay well, we need to make sure we have public support for this they painted themselves into a corner and it's not just the Labour government that we currently have, it's every government since the Misuse of Drugs Act came in, Mm -hmm. has been pushing this line that drugs are bad, drugs always cause harm, drug use equals drug harm, drug users are losers, Mm -hmm. drug users are criminals, you know, don't do drugs, kids. And all of these messages have been going out, and a lot of the messages have been factually inaccurate. Mm -hmm. The classification system bears no resemblance to any form of evidence of harm whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And But we've had 45 years of this. And so now they're putting themselves in a position where they have trained a lot of members of the New Zealand public to believe the bullshit that's being put out. I hope yeah. I'm allowed to say that. I know you are. Yeah, um, yeah. And so now they've created a populace that, in, in the majority, because I'm aware I live in a bubble, mm-hmm. um, 
the majority of the populace still believes that drugs are bad. Like, they're moving on cannabis, but if you start talking about what they describe as hard drugs, and mm-hmm. I'm like, what even is that? But you start talking about that, people start freaking out at the idea of, of decriminalisation because they're afraid that more people will use them and that more harm will come because mm. use equals harm. They've been trained to believe that. So moves to decriminalise now create moral panics and and they've done it to themselves but it's their job to fix it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i totally agree yeah a really interesting thing to me is a lot of people just the the amount of people that i've talked to who say i just don't know about you know for example with the referendum with marijuana i I just don't know the effects i don't know enough and yet still vote no Mm. my thinking is if you don't know just don't vote you know yeah and I mean, the or evidence become informed. is out there. Yeah, <laughs> first of all, become informed. But second of all, don't cancel out somebody who has done a lot of research and is informed on this topic. You know, mm. don't just go with your gut, you know? I think we should acknowledge the progress that's been made, though, because when the referendum was first mooted, the Drug Foundation did a poll mm. about who would vote for legalization of cannabis. And the result was 28%. Said so, yes, wow. So in two years, it has moved by, what's that, 22% more, nearly half of the population, like minuscule amount under half, now thinks that cannabis should be legalised. And we've got to remember that that was a very specific bill we were voting on, you know. And Mm. if you were to say decriminalisation, that will go up again. So I feel like we've come a very long way in a couple of years, and a lot of that is down to the campaigning by the Drug Foundation Mm. um, and information being made more available to people. So we're getting there. Progress has been made. It's just not quite fast enough to counter the misinformation campaigns and the 40 years of training yeah yeah well, yeah what are some of the the biggest arguments against bringing in testing to these festivals um there's two main ones that i hear the first one is based in misconceptions about what we do so that is the fear that we will give people a false sense of security that we will make people think that drug use is safe that their drugs are safe and that they can just go nuts with drugs and do whatever they want and not get hurt and i say that's a misconception because safe isn't a word we use we say safer Mm. but mostly we talk about risk so when we're talking with somebody about say they bring in some ketamine and we ask them if they've used ketamine before and then we start talking about the risks associated with ketamine and here are the things could go wrong and here are the things that you can do to prevent that from happening and and basically we give people a much clearer and more factual picture of what they're about to do rather than go yeah it's ketamine you're safe yeah because i mean that's who would do that mm-hmm. um so that is one of the perceptions that is yeah it's well, just wrong, basically. <laughs> the other one is a fear of being seen to condone drug use. Mm. And that is a slightly different one because that's based in this moral idea that drug use is bad and that we should be telling people not to use drugs. And the, I mean, it has been described as cognitive dissonance by our clients. They get searched at the gate of a festival. Someone rummages through their personal stuff looking for drugs to take them off them. And then they get into the festival and it's like, here is drug checking. And they do find that a little bit weird because it's kids, don't do drugs, don't do drugs, but here, we'll check your drugs. Mm -hmm. And I totally get that that's strange. But the thing is, all of that don't do drugs messaging does work for a lot of people. A lot of people are prevented from using drugs by being told not to do drugs, but there are people who will use drugs regardless, and those are the people we're reaching. Mm. So I don't see it as condoning drug use so much as keeping people alive 
until mm-hmm. they are able to make di- different decisions, essentially. And some people will continue to use drugs all their lives, but that is a very, very small minority. So most of the people we're dealing with are between 18 and 25. These people are experimenting with drugs and will probably eventually go, you know what, I'll have the occasional joint and then I'll drink my beer and I'll be happy. But until they reach that point, we're just keeping them alive. Mm-hmm. And so... I don't see that as condoning drugs when the people that we're serving have already decided to use drugs and gone out and purchased drugs. Right. Yeah, of course. Yeah, they're already there. So yeah. do, you, do you see your organization's role as more just preservation of life? That's reducing harm and keeping people alive. Essentially, we, we are nothing more than an information service. And the information that is out there about drugs is very, very... Um, it's got a lot of gaps in it because mm-hmm. one of the things we hear a lot, especially from you know concerned of nine eye on the internet, um, is they know the risks, and actually they don't. They know drugs have a risk, but they don't know what that risk is. Like, mm. I mean, can you tell me whether taking MDMA is more or less risky than driving your car? Statistically speaking, I would say driving my car is. You're probably right mm-hmm. in. If you look at the actual numbers, they're about the same. Right. So like per per trip, let's sure. say, uh-huh. deaths per trip, it's roughly the same. But then you start, and it took me probably three days to dig up the statistics that I needed to be able to find that out. And what I discovered is that that is based on self-reporting and a lot of people lie about their drug use. So there is probably way more drug use going on than is actually acknowledged, which sure. means... The, the statistics only represent the drug use we know about, so it's probably a lower risk mm. than driving a car. But the fact that it took me, a drug expert, right. days to find that out, and yet everyone thinks that kids are supposed to know that risk, and they don't, and that is what we tell them. Which mm-hmm. We make the risks clearer to them so that they can do a better assessment of the risk. Totally get it. But there is an agenda as well to reform to a certain degree, right? There certainly is. Yeah. Um, because realistically we shouldn't need to exist at all. Mm-hmm. Um, prohibition has very, very clearly caused more harm than it's prevented. And and so if we want actual ev- evidence-based drug policy, then we're talking about a situation where these risks are spelled out for people like they are with alcohol on the label of the bottle that you buy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah, of course. It's like this alcohol contains this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. if you do this, this will happen. You know, the stuff that we tell people, but on a label. Yes, yeah, and yeah. And then we could just all spend New Year's at home with our families. <laughs> It'd be great. <laughs> and so uh, the funding that you guys currently have is, and I don't know if you're allowed to able to explain this but it comes from the festivals themselves correct currently to an extent um the events that we work with if it's a commercial for-profit event we ask them to cover our costs Mm -hmm. we with community organizations we ask for a koha same with student associations Mm -hmm. um and the static clinics that we run publicly in the cities are currently there is no cost associated with those um in terms of funding that we receive, but we also get public donations. Okay. Um, Does that make up a majority of the funding or is it? No. 50-50? No, yeah. No, probably the majority of our funding comes from commercial events that pay. Gotcha. Um, 
it's enough to cover our costs. It's enough so that we can buy T-shirts and we can cover the costs of volunteers to go to events. This is starting next year. We'll be able to do that. Cool. Historically, they have covered their own costs to get to events, which it amazes me how much people are willing to put into this. It's mm. like I will pay my own costs to go and work in an event <laughs> yeah. to help keep other people safe, which suggests that there are a lot of people who think this is a good idea. Mm -hmm. um, but mm. ultimately, there needs to be better funding if this is to be sustainable. Um, I don't get paid. None of our core crew get paid. And I, since the law change, I've been working about 30 hours a week on it I on yeah, top I'm of sure my so. full-time job. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm <laughs> blown away that you are not paid and this isn't your full-time job that's insane it does feel a little bit like it's time it became became our full-time job mm. like i don't know we, we we fought for this we won and yeah. the prize was more work yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. but that what's happening is that the demand has increased along with the legality which is understandable but even we didn't anticipate just how much demand there would be sure and in order to be able to focus on filling that demand, demand adequately with a quality service, someone needs to be focused on it full-time. In fact, there's probably more than one full-time job involved in, in coordinating all of this. Um, what we currently have is a bunch of people focusing on it part-time. And while that works for the size we are now, it's not going to work if they want us at 10 events over New Year's. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's time people started getting paid so we can dedicate ourselves to it. And so what is your capacity right now? So, Our capacity is limited by the gear we have. So mm -hmm. we own one spectrometer mm -hmm. and we have the loan of two others. Okay. So we are able to attend three separate events at any given time but what we're finding since the law change is that at each event we've gone to there has been a much higher demand mm, so lines yeah yeah cues in both and senses <laughs> also yeah right <laughs> <laughs> and so we're looking at any event over about 1500 people we need to take two spectrometers that's most events isn't it <laughs> that is yeah. most events like we do we do serve some quite small events but mm -hmm. yeah most of them are 2000 people or over and we recently went to an event with a population of two and a half thousand and we had to turn people away mm -hmm. because we simply could not put through enough with one spectrometer so we need yeah. more gear um we can change our model to a degree. For example, in the UK, the Loop, which is our English counterpart, they have a model whereby people put their sample in a little bag with a label and they drop it drop it in, yeah. um, take a ticket, and when the sample has been tested, it goes up on a board and they can come in and get their result. Interesting. Which separates the testing from the harm reduction talk and the results given uh, yep, in a yep. way that makes it much more efficient. But you still lose a huge selling point for you guys. The 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 fascination of the science is quite a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> but I think most people would accept that model for the sake of getting, like knowing what's in their substance. Yeah. And I think that would work quite well. But one drawback that we've considered is that in the UK, they drop a pill in a bag and they don't get it back. Mm -hmm. So in the UK, a pill is five quid. Mm -hmm. In New Zealand... Yeah, it's like 35, 40. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and sometimes, depending on the scarcity, which is something that we're currently experiencing, the price will go up to $70. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so people are not going to drop one pill 
you know, and then you start getting questions of, well, how much is enough for a sample if you're not actually there to describe it to the person? Mm -hmm. So we have some um, practical and logistical issues to work through before we move to that model, but that seems like a higher throughput model and mm. one where we could potentially have a few people on the testing and have most of the people on the harm reduction talk, which is where the real impact is made. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and be dealing with half a dozen people at a time instead of one at a time. Yeah. So, so it has advantages. We just have to work through how we can make that work. It almost seems like you guys may eventually have to switch to that charging model to a certain degree. We are pretty determined not to. Okay. Um, we feel that, okay, over New Year's there was, as you're probably aware, a massive increase in the in And the I, do, I, I do want to talk about this, yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah, and so what came out of that was we put out an alert over New Year's about this, the substance in question and there were a whole bunch of people that got in trouble with it um, who who took it inadvertently and found out after the fact that they'd taken something that wasn't MDMA and I heard got all very about very this. sick. Yeah, yeah uh -huh. but in equal proportion, there were people who had seen our messaging, who were able to access reagent tests, or even not in a lot of cases, had just seen our messaging and gone, "It's not worth the risk. I'm not taking this." Mm. And we're talking about hundreds, hundreds of people messaged us saying, "I didn't go to hospital because of you," mm -hmm. um, and we started thinking about the maths involved in that and how much money we're actually saving the New Zealand public by those kids not going to hospital. Mm -hmm. Never mind the the harm and their parents' worry and all that stuff just purely in dollar value we saved the government enough money so they could have bought us all the spectrometers we need and still mm -hmm. have money to spare so um this this is my answer to the people who say not my tax dollars it's like well who pays when the kids go to hospital it's mm -hmm. you sunshine so mm -hmm. you know you could be paying less by paying us yes yeah, <laughs> and yeah. so i will continue to argue that this should be at least partly government funded the festival organizers have shown a willingness to pay as well. So there are a number of ways in which funding could be done without ever charging the client because the minute we charge the client, people are going to go, oh, I'm not sure I want to pay for this. And while some people will go, well, if you're prepared to buy drugs, you should be prepared to pay for this. Mm -hmm. The fact is that people aren't, and we deal in reality, not shoulds. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can talk about what people should do, but we at we, we talk about what people do do and mm -hmm. what people do do is walk away when you make them pay. Yeah. <laughs> so we're not going to be charging people. Get it. Yeah, totally get it. And, and I guess this kind of leads into, you touched on the increase in, uh, you know, terrible, the other substances that we mm. have. I mean, more commonly for just bath salts. Yep. But uh, that that was because of the bust that they had up in the, in, in Northland. Is that correct? Or um. There's a bunch of theories. So first things first, bath salts is a term we try to avoid, but unfortunately it's one of those ones that stuck. People understand it. Mm -hmm. The unfortunate part is that bath salts refers to a family of drugs called cathinones, and it is a very large family of drugs. Right. Um, they're all stimulants, but that's about all they have in common. So when you say bath salts, you're not really saying anything useful. Um, cathinones is more useful, but the one that particularly we had a problem with this year is called Utilone, and it's a new one um, that sort of emerged in the last two years. It's a particularly nasty, insidious little substance that people take it, they feel a little bit like they've had weak MDMA for about an hour and then it wears off, and they're left feeling anxious and stimulated, agitated, 
that sort of thing. And of course, because it felt a little bit like MDMA, a lot of people then go, oh, it wasn't very strong, I'll have some more. And that's when the dose response curve goes exponential Mm -hmm. and suddenly Mm -hmm. we're talking about some pretty serious health issues like vomiting and diarrhea and not being able to sleep is the best of it. Um, we're talking seizures, hallucinations, psychosis, um, all sorts of really, really scary stuff. And also people 10 days later messaging us going, I still feel sick. So it's, it's a nasty little substance. And last year we found in the MDMA supply, 2% was cathinones. This year it's been sitting on around about 35%. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a massive increase and the theories behind that there's the the pink Porsche people who got busted but I don't actually think that's got a lot to do with it um, certainly the knockoff pink Porsches we've been testing this year aren't the same as the originals anyway they've got caffeine in them mm. so someone's been adding stimulants to a stimulant and s- trying to pass it off as a high dose pill and that's bollocks they're not Mm -hmm. (laughs) this year's pink porsches are basically one dose of mdma and two strong cups of coffee right yeah (laughs) so that's one of the theories it sounds pretty awesome uh, (laughs) we actually had someone the other day who was is not a caffeine user who reacts really badly to caffeine and was very very appreciative that Mm. they now knew that that pill had that caffeine in it because they mm. didn't want to take heart it. Heart palpitations. And yeah, yeah. Like and if you've got heart problems, stacking stimulants like that can be a problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, another theory is, of course, COVID. Because if you think about supply lines around the world being disrupted, most of our MDMA comes from Europe. Mm. A lot of the cathinones come from Southeast Asia. And Europe has not done that great a job of handling COVID. Um, Southeast Asia has done a better job of handling COVID and their supply lines are working a lot better. So that's the second theory. Mm -hmm. Third theory is that one of the major dark websites got taken down late last year and there's a whole lot of new sites have sprung up to replace it because that's what happens. But these sites don't have reputation yet. So there's no way of knowing if people can trust the, the sellers. So I think that probably it's a combination of all of these factors. Um, But what it's led to for us, being the only country in the world that's currently having festivals, is a massive increase in cathinones in the MDMA supply to a point where it has been causing a lot of problems for people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I mean, 32% from 2% to 38% is what you said? Yeah, like the the worst event we were at was 55%. 55% of the MDMA you guys tested came back as just cathinones? Yes, as utilone, this one cathinone. As just the one. And yes. utilone, do any, does anybody take utilone for the, knowing it's utilone or is it always used as a mask or a you know cheeky MDMA? On the internet, you can find trip reports from people who've deliberately taken utilone and often it is to find out what it does for the sake of writing a trip report. So right. we're talking your psychonauts, the people who, who like to take novel substances. We have never come across a client at our event who's gone, yay, I bought utilone, I hope it's utilone. <laughs> they, they all think it was MDMA. Okay. And when they find out it's utilone, they throw it in the bleach jar. Yeah. Yeah, very, yeah. very, well... 20, 25% of people will still take it. And the reasons we've been given for that are on, on a spectrum, but they're basically along the lines of there is nothing else around at the moment. I don't like my chances of having any other kind of substances. This will at least get me high. Mm-hmm. And now I know how to take it without 
causing myself problems. Got you. Got yeah. you. Whereas before seeing us, they would have just gone, oh, it's MDMA. I'm going to have two. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so when people are getting these drugs, are the people who are selling them, are they typically at the festivals themselves? Because from people that I've spoken to and in my own experience, it's when people are buying, they don't come prepared, you know? And I think a great thing that you guys did was you did testing leading up to the festival season. And I understand capacity. You guys are just strapped, but it just wasn't enough because I think a lot of people are buying it the week before, you know, and you guys are doing testing month, two months before, which is great. But I tell I, 18-year-old kids aren't going to be like, all right, I've bought my ticket two months ago. I've booked my Accommodate. No one's doing that. Like, I'll go buy a ticket, you know? Yeah. And they're like, okay, I'll get some drugs. It's just not <laughs> enough time. Not wrong. <laughs> you know? So, uh, and you're quite right. I mean, we did what we could, and our Auckland team especially bunged on an extra one like three days before Christmas that. or yeah. something. And I was like, go you guys, because, wow. Um, but it wasn't enough. It's never going to be enough. Um, the public clinics, if they were run on a regular basis, there will be smaller demand at each, but they're currently reaching capacity within 10 minutes of opening. Right. That's the demand. Mm -hmm. um, and you, you're right. People do tend to score their drugs at the last minute or even in the festival. Mm. We have the, the indications are that it's a case of both. Like, we have heard rumours that a lot of the Utilone came out of Auckland, which suggests that people had bought it in Auckland and then gone to whatever event they were at. Mm. However, let's face it, not only are there people selling stuff inside events and, and people getting busted for doing so, there is also the situation where people are searched at the gates of events and their drugs are taken off them. Mm -hmm. And then they go, oh, I need to buy more drugs inside this event now. And mm -hmm. and this this perception that taking drugs off kids at the gate is going to stop them taking drugs is a little bit misguided. What it does do is it tends to push them into seeking drugs inside the event and there is now evidence because it's been researched and a pub paper was published last year I believe by the people behind the loop that demonstrated that drugs obtained inside an event are much more likely to be dodgy than drugs obtained outside an event mm -hmm. um, so I kind of feel like these this confiscating drugs at the gate is actually exacerbating the problem mm. um, by creating a market inside the event for people who are kind of desperate and will buy anything. Yes, um, I totally agree. And our presence there may limit that to an extent, but it's a matter of reach. Mm -hmm. um, how many of the people inside the event are we actually going to be able to reach? I am, I, I want to say blown away. I'm blown away from a risk perspective of an individual who would mix Utilone or sell MDMA, sell Utilone under the guise of it being MDMA. And this leads into a few questions, mainly just the legal liability of having killed someone, essentially. Um, and I do wonder, at what stage of awareness are the dealers at where, where they know they're selling Utilone versus I just bought a bunch of MDMA, I'm going to go sell it at a festival. Are we talking about the wholesale sellers who are bringing it into New Zealand and then they have, you know... 10,000 pills, which we know is Utilone, but we're going to sell it as MDMA. Is it that? Or, I mean, where where are people aware that they're selling a 
different substance than that it actually is? That's a really good question and one that I probably can't answer with any real authority because we're not experts on drug markets. We just sure. hear a lot of anecdotal stuff. Um, one of the things we do know that is that the majority of supply in New Zealand is social supply. So that so means that someone mean? will basically buy a bunch of drugs and share it amongst their friends. Yes. So, yes. yeah, mm-hmm. it's like I will score for this festival for all 20 of us kind mm-hmm. of thing. Um, and I doubt very much that those people at this time, when they do that, are knowing that what they're getting is not what it's supposed to be. I suspect mm-hmm. it's happening higher up the chain. And when you think about the, the dark web theory, of people, of this site going down, new sites springing up and suddenly Utilone, suggests that this is happening at that level. So especially now that a lot of drugs coming into the country are coming in in small batches through the post from the dark web rather than being, you know, shoved in teddy bears. Is, is that what it is? It's, uh, it's, it's small batches it's of things? It's increased considerably. Yeah. And, I mean, the people who are doing this, they know that some of it will be stopped. Yes. And they know that most of it won't mm-hmm. because customs simply cannot stop everything. So sending a whole lot of small batches, law of averages, some of them are going to get through. Of course. And so yeah. this, this form of supply has become a lot more popular. But what that has done has meant that the chains, like the supply chains have changed as well. It's not like Mr. Big yeah. who's importing yeah, yeah. all the stuff and that's the one who knows that it's not. It's now a whole lot of different like smaller scale from a lot of different places and so it's much much harder to pin down who's actually doing the ripoff part yes or putting people at risk and yeah. i imagine the police will be a good people Absolutely. to ask this question of but i don't know if they would answer you <laughs> i don't think so either i just wonder how far up the chain it goes you know like we have that that unfortunate story of the of a kid i believe at a festival in the north island further up north who who died recently you know an 18 or 19 year old boy and I I wonder who's liable, and because yeah, I mean I think I think what happened, I don't I, I actually I don't know if I want to speak from what I understand what happened was one of his friends social social sharing bought the drugs for all his friends gave it out to all his friends one, you know they were tainted substances the kid took it and obviously that kid shouldn't be punished but. I, I wonder where the onus falls in a legal sense. Does it stop with him? Does it stop with the guy who sold it to him? Does the guy who sold it to him know what he's doing? Does it go even further up, further up? In Australia, they have, in New South Wales, I believe, just imp- implemented a law, the attention, intention of which is to place manslaughter charges on dealers if someone dies, mm-hmm. on whoever sold them those drugs. And it does raise an interesting question because, yeah, I doubt that the social supply person, unless they've actually tested them, mm-hmm. know that that's what's happening. Um, and so it goes further up the chain. And, and so I believe that it's the job of the police to yes, go up there where. and find out I who's agree. doing that. Um, on the topic of, of that kid that died, we haven't had results of a post-mortem, so we mm. don't actually know whether drugs were involved in that death at all. And it's an interesting thing that comes up because there were three deaths at festivals over New Year's, mm-hmm. and everyone in the country was like, ah, drugs! Mm. And there was no evidence to suggest that any of them have actually taken drugs. Right. But everyone leaps to this conclusion that if someone dies at a festival, it's naturally drugs. Uh-huh. Um, so we try to sort of help people understand that 
when there is a sudden death in New Zealand, it gets referred for post-mortem. The coroner decides whether there will be a post-mortem to establish a cause of death, and that takes weeks. Mm -hmm. So the results of post-mortems on the sudden deaths over New Year's are not available yet, so we don't actually know if any of those Uh, people died of drugs. But it is definitely a familiar story of, you know, and and in Australia the same thing, kids die over there as well. And who, who is the person who knew that it wasn't supposed to be Mm-hmm. Well, it wasn't what it was supposed to be. How to find that out? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, because yeah, it's, hear, it's just hearsay, right? Oh, I, didn't, I didn't do it. You know? Yeah, yeah. And this is why we have drug checking is to try and help people mm-hmm. to do that. And often, I mean, we've had these messages from people over New Year's exactly that, going, me and my 20 friends bought this stuff. We got it tested with you guys. It turned out to be Utilone. We threw it all out. Thank yeah. you. All 20 of us say thank you. You know, yeah. So you're quite right. That does happen, and that could have ended so much worse. Mm. Why is, and this might be a stupid question, but why is MDMA much more available than cocaine in New Zealand? I think partly it's just more popular, yeah, cheaper, better bang for your buck. Uh-huh, sure. <laughs> I mean, let's let's yeah, face yeah. it. The, the the cocaine sort of culture that that you see in other countries doesn't seem to exist to such an extent here, mm-hmm. and especially not at festivals. Like cocaine is kind of the realm of wanky business people well yeah, it's interesting because <laughs> it's it's super prevalent in auckland i mean yeah. relative to everywhere well, else we did say wanky business people, yeah didn't we? i was um, gonna <laughs> say yeah bye 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 sell <laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry auckland um but it, certainly at festivals it has just i just looked at a recent festival data before i came here and it has just dropped out of our top five. Interesting. Um, what are your top five of festivals? MDMA, far and away. Sure. Next one, LSD, has yes. been dropping over um, the last couple of years in, in certainly quantity that's brought to us. Next one, ketamine. And historically, it's been ketamine and cocaine neck and neck, but ketamine has increased in popularity and cocaine seems to have decreased. And I'm guessing that's partly at least related to COVID and supply chains. Um, And the next one is amphetamine, which historically hasn't featured, but it seems that this year we're seeing slightly more. Certainly at this event that I looked at. Amphetamines, is that inclusive of like Ritalin, Adderall? Well, they're not amphetamines. Oh, Um, God. What what are they classified? They are um, uh, ethylphenidate. Oh, which is it's <laughs> right listen guys i'm sorry okay. <laughs> this is, this is, well we can we can start talking chemical names but essentially they're not in the amphetamine family okay. they are a stimulant similar to amphetamines but they're not amphetamines okay they're classified differently um so we're talking amphetamine methamphetamine dexamphetamine essentially those dexamphetamine two. is it's a it's a pharmaceutical amphetamine in a very very tiny dose that i don't even know what it's prescribed for but is often used recreationally Okay. Yeah. So, and the other one is unknown. So, ground scores. Right. And people say that they found it on the ground and don't know what it is. And that, that can end up being anything. But that those are our five most commonly brought things. God, you got to be so ballsy to take something you found off the ground. Well, I think often people are going, I found this bag on the ground. I want to know if it's going to kill me or not if I take it. So they... Yeah, okay, yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, I was saying without testing. I'm like, yeah, Jesus right. Christ. Yeah, and I, I mean, people do do that because there's always someone who's going to engage in that kind of sure, risky yeah. behavior. But the, I think that's why it's so high in our list is because most people would rather not 
yeah. take something they don't know what it is. Now, from a risk perspective, I'm going to take a drug at a festival without testing it at all. Besides marijuana, what is the riskiest and safest drug to do that with? Um, well, <laughs> that that's that's a difficult question to sort of speak about in black and white, but certainly. MDMA is a relatively low-risk drug. I mean, if you took it without knowing what it was and it turned out not to be MDMA, then, you know, risk's unknown. Sure, yeah, there's such a wide variation. Yeah, but certainly if people are going to take a drug and they don't know what it is, our recommendation is to approach it incrementally. And so we're talking about the things that potentially could be if you're going to swallow it, which is the safest route of administration for most drugs, so we go swallow it, take a third of what you would normally take. And so, for example, if you, if you're, if you thought your bag was MDMA, but it turned out to be N-ethylpentalone, which is another of the cathinones that's been around, the normal dose for N-ethylpentalone is 30 mg. Mm-hmm. And for MDMA, it's about 100. So if you take a third of that, mm. you're not going to overdose on mm. N-ethylpentalone. And then you wait for an hour or so and see what happens before thinking about taking more because you should know within an hour whether it's going to be what you wanted or something else. Got you. Um, And at that point, you haven't taken enough to send you to hospital so you can go, okay, that was fucked up and I'm not going to take it. Mm -hmm. Um, So that is our advice, basically. Um, And don't take any other things in the meantime, like alcohol, etc. The idea being that... You find out what's going on before you have taken too much. Mm. Because once it's in there, you can't take it out. Mm-hmm. So you can always take more. Yes. And and this, again, is operating on the assumption that people are going to take it. Because we can go, don't take it. But everybody says that. And in a lot of cases, they say it about stuff that's actually a really good time. So people learn not to believe you when you say, don't take it. Mm-hmm. This happened to us over New Year's um, when someone had some stuff that tested as Utilone. And they took it anyway, and luckily they listened to the rest of what we said, and they didn't have alcohol, and they only took a little bit, and they still had a horrendous hangover and felt awful, but they spoke to a journalist and told the journalist that, yes, know your stuff has said don't take it, but you know... Everyone says don't take drugs. It sounded like our parents. So, yeah. and, and this is what we have trained kids to do, is to ignore the don't take drugs message. So we're now going, okay, if you're going to take this, here is how to not die. Right, <laughs> right, which is a much healthier approach. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, you. it's like we need to start giving people factual information. We need to start being real about what drugs do and don't do. And we need to start treating kids like they have agency and brains because if you – Give them good information, they make good decisions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Of <laughs> We've course. got to stop lying to them. Yeah. And as far as like drugs that are most easily tampered with or disguised as something else, I feel like it would probably be powdered form like MDMA, but with LSD, it's a bit different. Is that correct? To, to a degree, like. Things that have been brought to us as MDMA, we found all sorts. And you're quite right. They all look the same. You know, people are like, oh, it smells different. It doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't taste different. They all taste foul. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, brown crystals, white powder, blah. They could be MDMA. They could be any one right. of 15 other things. LSD is slightly different in the respect that 
it's active in tiny, tiny doses. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to sell something as LSD that's not LSD, it has to fit on a blotter, a tab, whatever you want to call them. Um, There are substances that will do that. And one of them that we have concern about is called 25I NBOME, which commonly known as NBOM. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. Um, It's similar in effect to LSD, similar in dose to LSD. People who are experienced will notice a difference, but most people won't. However, it has a massive difference in dose response. Like for LSD, you can take a significantly larger amount than you really, really should. And you might go insane, but you won't die. Yeah, Um, yeah. Um, with NBOM, two to three doses could kill you. So it only takes someone having a shaky hand when they're, when they're dripping stuff. Yeah. Or yeah. it's also unpredictable. Like people have taken it once and been fine and then taken it a second time and died. Right. So it's, it's of concern. And we, we've heard rumors without seeing it in the data yet that it's on the increase. Mm-hmm. Uh, we understand that more of it has been found at the border as well. So we're a little bit concerned about that filtering through this year. Um, but that is about the only other thing we've ever seen substituted for LSD. And it's a very, very easy one to ascertain whether it's on your blotter or yeah. not. Okay, cool. When somebody has like a psychotic break through taking eulatone, yeah, is that right? Eutalone. Eutalone. Is that a permanent, I mean, I'm sure it does have long-term effects on you, but is that a just a stage of the effects? Like, did you come over that? Are you okay after that? Well, Stuff is still emerging about Eutalone because it is a new substance and hasn't been studied. But from what we've observed over New Year's, most people come back to themselves within 24 hours. Right. And then experience post-effects for about a week. But we have had reports of people who suddenly started having seizures three weeks after taking it, which is not a psychotic episode. And this is only anecdotal, so it's kind of, we don't have enough data yet to know whether that's going to be an ongoing thing, but Mm. we're a little bit concerned. But the other thing you've got to remember is any stimulant that keeps you awake for days is probably going to eventually lead to psychosis. Yeah, of course. (laughs) So get some sleep, (laughs) see how you feel after that. I think... Yeah, I uh, yeah, yo, just staying awake just in general is gonna make you go freaking nuts, right? But you guys are definitely getting a lot more media coverage now, and is that a symptom of more progressive attitudes towards drug testing? Is it a symptom of there being more drugs in New Zealand, or is it a a symptom of just the natural growth that you guys have had? I think the main thing is that drugs are sexy. Mm-hmm. So for a journalist who's trying to make a story, especially in a slow news week, drugs. Gotcha. <laughs> they, people click on drug headlines. So there's that. And what we do is slightly controversial. So we've got the perfect mix of getting people to read an article in the media yeah. from a very cynical perspective, that is. But realistically, um, we see a surge in media every summer. Um, especially around New Year's because, again, not much else is happening. (laughs) But there are festivals. And I think the increase in interest in us this year is mostly to do with the law change. People are interested in how that's affected the service, whether it's actually making a difference, whether Simon Bridges' doom saying about how all the kids are going to suddenly rush out and take drugs because drug checking is legal. Is that actually happening? No, Simon, it's not. Mm. Um, but so the media is interested in keeping tabs on changes post 
law change, I think, mm-hmm. is probably the big one at the moment. And then, of course, the Utilone thing happened, and that was a big deal too. Yeah, yeah, I I would agree from from what I've seen. I think, and I do think attitudes are changing as well. The conversations that we have around things as well I do. are changing. Um, I believe that we have changed the narrative around drugs in New Zealand with the work that we do. We've mm. we've started a conversation that I think is much more realistic. It used to be that we'd we'd say we do this and people will go, oh, that's condoning condoning drug use and that will be the end of the conversation. But now there is a whole stack of evidence that says, well, actually, drug use doesn't increase as a result of the presence of drug checking. And actually, here's a number of hospitalizations and here are some stories that have been put on Instagram by kids who didn't die because of us. And, And so... Parents in particular, who have always been our biggest supporters, Mm. are now talking in terms of harm reduction rather than just this don't do drugs and be safe, do drugs and be prepared to die. There is now a whole spectrum of options in the middle that people didn't know exists that we're talking about. And I think Know Your Stuff should take a lot of the credit for that Yeah. (laughs) just by standing up and going, hey, (laughs) drugs, let's talk about them sensibly. Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. It's nice to see. And so what's the next steps for the organization going forward? Um, Well, this year is obviously huge expectation of growth has been placed on us doesn't have to be us that's one of the things i'd like to okay put out cool. there is that we encourage other organizations to do it particularly i would like to see universities mm. doing it they are ideally placed they often already have the equipment they have a student body that's keen to volunteer to help themselves and they have resources so i'm kind of going A spectrometer isn't just a drug-checking tool. It's a learning tool. So if you're going to spend money on buying a spectrometer, it's killing a whole lot of birds with one stone as far as your budget goes. You're looking after your students' well-being, which is a good thing, and they are just perfectly placed to set themselves up to do this. So we're encouraging and facilitating universities into this by helping train people and, and... providing information about how drug checking works in the hope that eventually universities will have drug checking services on campus for their students. So that's one of the things we're doing. We are working with a couple of organisations that are interested in moving into the space who we believe have the right ethos of harm reduction to be able to do this work in the way that we think it should be done because, you know, it's always up to us how it should be done, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it's not, but we would like to All encourage people. I. Yeah, right. Yeah. So so we're working with, with those organisations to help them move into the space. We're working with the ministry to help develop a regulatory framework around drug checking. Wow. And we're trying to grow. So yeah. growth is more gear and more people, which... I mean, if you boil it down, it's more money. So um, my deputy this weekend is busy writing an impact report based on our our data that we are going to be sending out seeking funds. And that isn't just government funds, that's private funding. I mean, I wouldn't mind getting to know Richard Branson personally because I think he'd be into it. But but like seeking secure funding so that we can pay people and dedicate staff to this work because then we can start filling the demand that has become very, very clear since the law change and also supporting more of the public clinics. And we think that that's a place where the government could really put money to make a real difference Mm -hmm. is like having weekly even drug checking clinics in the main centres would reduce the impact at festivals just purely because people could go 
outside of the events and and the more frequently they happen the less swamped they are when they happen. I would love to see a report on how much money you guys are saving the government. <laughs> Me too. You know, just to even like, if you could just base it out of like, you know, prior to us being here, there were X amount of admissions to hospitals. I mean, there's so many variables that come into it, of course, as well, you know, with more people coming back to New Zealand, more festivals happening. But I mean, you're absolutely saving somebody money. You know, <laughs> yeah, we, we know we're saving money, um, and the the difficulty is putting a number on it. Sure. Um, and part of that is in relation to how this type of situation is reported. Um, and I'm not talking about reported in the media. I'm talking about reported even within events. So the way a drug intoxication, which is what they call it when someone's ABCs are compromised. ABCs? Um, through drug use, airway, breathing, circulation. So gotcha. somebody who needs life support, basically. Um, how these are recorded varies between organisations, between events, between DHBs. Mm. Um, often it isn't recorded whether the person, like it's not separated whether it was illicit drugs or alcohol or both. Mm. Sometimes it's not recorded which drug. So it's actually very, very difficult to pinpoint exactly what difference we're making but what we do know is how many drugs we see go into our bleach jar how many people say they don't won't take these things once we've told them what they are mm -hmm. and from that we can make an estimate of how much money we're saving and that's part of the work that Jez is doing this weekend cool. um i'm very very glad that i've got people to help with that <laughs> absolutely that still blows my mind that it's just you on this thing it's insane well it's it's Sorry, not just you, but as like not yeah. doing doing this in the sense of it not being a full time job, right? And that is mostly because of the passion of a quite large and growing group of people mm. who are willing to put so much time. I'm utterly blown away because when I started doing this, like I said, I wanted to help my own community. I wanted to prove that it works. Yeah, that's all I wanted to do. If it wasn't for my deputy, Jez Weston, um, a bunch of other people who've jumped on board. Andrea Knox does all of our data and has been doing it for six years, and she's one of the best evaluators in the country. Mm -hmm. So we know, like, I, she won't let me say anything that can't be backed by data. So gotcha. when I open my mouth, I know I can go back and go, and here are the numbers to back it, yeah. which is why I'm not putting numbers on how much call. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> money we <we're> because <laughs> Andrea would have a fit. <laughs> but the, these people are putting in hours and hours and hours to try and make this happen and I am just utterly blown away by the willingness people have to do this work to help other people stay safe. It's amazing. And and then to have the likes of Simon Bridges come in and, and say a whole lot of ignorant stuff about it as mm. if he actually knows. It's actually really offensive that he thinks he has a right to speak at all, to be honest. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, he won't anymore. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wendy. Thank you for coming on. Anything you want to plug really quickly? I mean, obviously, I'll put all the details of your organization in the show notes and everything like that. Um, not really. I mean, if you really think that what we're doing is great, donate. Hey. Hey, we have a donate button on the website. We've also got a bank account number there. You can just shove money at us or volunteer if you think you've got a skill we need because we are going through massive growth and that means back-end stuff like fix our website, make it look pretty, that kind of thing. Nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, hopefully we find somebody. Awesome. Thank you very much. No worries. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you again for tuning in. That was a blast. Once again, you can find all their details in the show notes down below. Uh, know your stuff. Kick-ass organization. Regarding my tour, American Refugees, 
uh, just click the show notes below. You don't want to hear this spiel again. Uh, come to my show, Desperate for Ticket Sales. And once again, thank you to Juicy Rentals for sponsoring our tour uh, and indirectly my podcast. Thank you. Bye. They endorse everything I say. Bye.